Uh, let me just, if I may, uh, briefly recap from last week. Uh, we've been looking at uh, the subject, the theme, the doctrine of worship. We're going to be concluding that on Tuesday evening as well. Three quick points from last week, though. Firstly, God has created us in his image. And therefore, we are worshippers. Uh, that is because as Father and Son and Spirit honour and serve one another perfectly, that is, worship one another perfectly in their Trinity relationship, so we, made in the image of God, are created as worshipping beings. Second point. We can worship God in our lives now, which is for our good and a great blessing, and just a foretaste of the blessing uh, to come in eternity. Or we, have, we can, if we want, ignore the first four commandments and worship someone or something other than God. Third point. God has always called his people to worship him alone. Right from the beginning of uh, the creation, we as creatures of the creator are called by him to worship him. But now Jesus, as we saw in John 4, has opened up a new way that previously was a way enabled through the temple sacrifices and priests. Now true authentic worship we saw is in the spirit and in truth in John 4. In the spirit basically meaning that is with the spirit of God in our hearts which comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In truth we saw in John 4 is that living a 24-7 life of worship will be in obedience to the truth of God's word that has been revealed in the Bible. Our worship, therefore, is enabled by God through Jesus Christ and in the Spirit. Implications? Well, enabled by Jesus through the Word and Spirit, we're called to live lives of worship every hour of every day, whether at home, work, the gym, eating salted caramel marshmallow treats after the service, and I've tried one already, they're amazing. That is worship. We worship God in absolutely everything. True authentic worship is he isn't just singing praises to God or in our gathering as a church. Yes, we worship as we gather, but we also go out to worship. We live as worshippers 24-7. Now, if you remember, there are three circles that I, try, I had to draw them on a little kind of like uh, thing last week, but they're on the, on the screen now, hopefully. Remember, the largest circle represents, uh, if you like, our life of worship, which is what we looked at last Sunday. This, the next circle, it represents when we gather as a church on, on a Sunday. The smallest circle represents our singing uh, as worship to God. We're going to look at that much more on Tuesday evening, if you join us then. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to sit in another critical passage in the New Testament if we're going to understand this theme, this doctrine of worship. But we're going to look really at the relationship between those two biggest circles, our lives of worship and as we gather to worship as Christians. Why don't you cast your eyes down Romans 12. You see it there? Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is, look... True and proper worship. Now, here's a slightly funny thing, okay, about the word worship that we read in our Bibles. 
Now, because there isn't actually one word uh, in the original language that we then kind of can translate as worship, there are actually a number of words, but two that are used within the New Testament the majority of the time. So last week we looked at John 4, didn't we? The word worship that we have in our translations there is a word that literally means to bow down or to honour. So you worship as you bow down to someone or something. But the word used as you look down in Romans 12 verse 1 there, the worship word, if you like, literally means to serve. And it's a completely different word in the original language. But if you like, they're like two sides of, of, of the worship coin, if you like. It's a strange illustration. But let's say someone, okay, let's say someone loves a, a football team. They would honour their football team, wouldn't they? In their hearts and how they speak about their football team. They would revere their football team. They would also work out that reverence and that honour of their football team by serving the football team, going to a match, buying the kit, cheering the team on. It would be weird, wouldn't it, if a, if a, a football supporter thought about their team, spoke about their team, loved their team, but never lived that out in actually going to support their team. It's like most Manchester United supporters, from what I can gather, but there we go. Sorry if you're a Manchester United supporter, but there we go. Would that be strange, wouldn't it? But our worship of God, yes, it, it is a heart, whole life attitude. But that must be naturally worked out in a life of service. That is, as we see in Romans 12 verse 1, our true and proper worship. I see that's on our, on our outlines there, our first main point. True and proper worship. But let's be very clear as we begin, as we dive in here. Notice that our worship of God isn't something that determines our eternal security with God. And this is so critical when coming to this subject. We saw last week that Jesus enables us through his life, death and resurrection to worship God. And, and here in Romans 12, we see that our worship is nothing more than a response to the mercy of God. Or, as I put in that little sub-point there, it is service, worship, in, in view of God's mercy. If you know the book of Romans at all, you'll know that Paul has spent the previous 11 chapters really kind of spelling out our need for God's mercy. Because in chapter 1 we're objects of God's wrath. How mercy has been made known to us through Christ's life, death and resurrection. And particularly in Romans, his penalty bearing substitutionary death on the cross. Then the, uh, Paul goes on in chapter 5, well, kind of 3, kind of onwards. He then spells out that through faith in Jesus, we can be made right with God. Or the word used is justified. And all this is achieved through the gracious mercy of God. It is an undeserved gift. And that is why you might, uh, if, if, to use a kind of a, a worship terminology, if you were to say, oh, who's a worship leader? Well, Jesus is. He's the great and kind of the only worship leader in that way because he alone is the one who leads us and enables us to worship God. You can't do it without him. 
It's in view of God's mercy, though, to us in Christ, that we then can offer up our lives to God. It is a response to a completed, a finished work of Jesus. Now, what does that mean practically? I do hope that you realise, Christians here today, I hope you realise that whatever you do, However much you come to church, however loud you, you sing, how, whatever instrument you play, if you play an instrument, please more people play instruments. Uh, but you know, whatever you do, whatever you do in your lives, nothing you can do can change your position before God. Unlike any other religion or philosophy where by your efforts, what you sacrifice, what you put in, what worship you do will help you therefore progress, get in better standing with that deity if you like. The Christian faith is unique in this because Christian worship is just a response to a completed work by Jesus. And that should be, I hope, a bit of a relief. A wonderful kind of like, how grateful you should be. Your life is just a response to a wonderful gift of grace and mercy. The question therefore comes, what can you offer God then? Well, like the great old hymn says, you come with empty hands. You come to the cross with empty hands. Simply to the cross I cling. Because that is where Jesus bought your salvation and all we can do is live a life in response to that. And that's reflected here in uh, Romans 12.1. Hence the offering of our bodies, it says there. Have you noticed that? The offering of our bodies. And that offering language is uh, from the temple where sacrifices were offered by the priests. But now because Jesus is our great high priest, uh, through faith in him, we can offer ourselves to God because we've been transformed and be made holy and pleasing to him through what Jesus has done for us. See, true and proper worship, therefore, is an offering of our whole selves, our whole bodies, the entirety of who we are. Our minds, our work, our lives, everything. And just dwell on that for a moment. Think about who you are. Think about what you have done in your body, with your body. The fact that God would delight in us, knowing us, knowing every detail of us, the fact that God would delight in us responding to his great work in the Lord Jesus Christ, in serving him with our whole bodies, isn't that amazing? How are we to offer our bodies? As living sacrifices, it says here. As living sacrifices. In the old system of the temple, the animals were sacrificed by placing them on an altar to make atonement. Uh, for people's sin, that is to make them right with God. But as Jesus is our once for all sacrifice, as we'll be seeing in, in Hebrews in our small groups this year, that is his blood sacrifice is once for all because it is utterly sufficient for all sin, for all time, for those who will put their faith in him. As a result, all we can do is respond to his perfect sacrifice, offering ourselves as living sacrifices in grateful thanks.
And this living, this whole body, every hour of every day worship of God in response to his mercy in Christ that by faith has transformed us. This is true and proper worship we read. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? True and proper. The word um, literally means, that it actually means true and logical service. The word proper is the same word we get, logical. It's the same word we get logic from uh, in, the, uh, in our language. And remember, worship here means service. What Paul is saying, therefore, is that the most logical response to what Christ has done for us is true and logical service of God. I know I'm sounding a little bit Spock, aren't I, of, a, of Star Trek at this moment. But he said, this is, the, this is the most logical response to what Christ has done. You see, to not offer ourselves to God in response to his mercy in Christ, well, we know what that feels like, many of us, don't we? We, we get that unsatisfying struggle as we, as we kind of push God aside in our lives. Hence why Paul is urging his readers here to offer themselves wholly to God. It's the most logical way, but we also know from his other writings, it's also the most joyful way. So we see true and proper worship in verse 1. What follows, though, in, in verse 2, if you like, are the means and the power for true and proper worship. The means of true and proper worship. Look at verse 2 again. Let me refresh our minds of that. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. We see there we're not to live as the rest of the world does, not conforming to the pattern of this world, responding to every whim and feeling. We're called to be distinct, holy, set apart. How's that to happen? What are the means, the way, if you like? It says by being transformed, by the renewing of our minds. Paul writes that little phrase in a particular tense. It's a present continuous tense. He's saying, you do that now and you keep on doing it. We are transformed, of course, when we put our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a definitive transformation that occurs as the Spirit enters our lives. But there is also a continuous transformation of the Christian day by day as we come to hear God speak through his word and the Spirit works through that word. We are transformed more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we spend so much time opening up our Bibles. It is so our minds can be renewed, so that we can be transformed in that way. And in so doing, look, we, we can know more clearly how to worship God. As it says in verse 2, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. As our minds and our hearts are renewed by the word and by the spirit, we will know how then to properly respond in worship and service of God. See, true and proper worship of God happens by means. Opening up God's word. Notice here that there's nothing of experience, is there? It's not a kind of a one-off event where you kind of feel all warm and like, yeah, this is great. No, there's none of that here. It's a continual, powerful transformation that happens 
from God speaking through his word and by his spirit into our lives, transforming us and renewing us. And can I just say, that's the best experience ever. We'll see more about this on Tuesday when we consider our affections and our experiences. But notice also that's the main function. We'll talk about this on Tuesday. It's the main function of our singing as Christians. We sing, you see, not to have a wonderful, warm experience in our hearts and lives. Though that may happen, we sing to renew our minds. Because we sing, we should be singing the word of God. We sing truths into our hearts and our minds and we sing to God in praise and worship of him. More of that on Tuesday. It's interesting, isn't it? The rest of Romans, if you were to springboard on from verse 3 of chapter 12 on to the end, it is kind of true and proper worship spelt out in practical ways. Chapter 12, for example, goes on to show us how we ought to love even those who persecute us. Chapter 13, the focus of our worship there is to be how we submit to rulers and authorities, our bosses, the taxman. And it goes on to the end. You see, true and proper worship is serving God in response to his mercy in Christ, being transformed day by day, in and through the word of God, and the spirit working in and through that. Here's an interesting question. If someone were to say to you, you know, maybe tomorrow at work or at home, you meet someone up, and if they said to you, what's the worship like at Christ at Hillsfield? What would you say? Where would you look to inform your answer? You see, we must look at the lives around us. How's the X doing in his worship in the office? How's Y doing in their worship at home? Of being a mum, of being a dad, of being a friend, of being a... You get the idea. It's in our conversations, as much as it is in our Bible studies, in our gathering on a Sunday. This is a worship of Christ Church Salesman. And you've got to ask the question, how are we doing? How are you doing? See, we must never let the disconnect happen. It so often happens between our worship of our lives together when we gather and our worship out there. Before we, I know I've laboured this point, I'm going to press it once more, just so we get the idea. But notice how central the word of God is to our worship. When we hear people preach and teach, we're worshipping. Why? Because our minds are being transformed by the word and the spirit. And being renewed. When we're singing... Yes, we're worshipping. If we're singing the word of God, our minds and our hearts will be transformed by the word and by the spirit. Our Bible studies, when we gather together each week on a Tuesday, the same thing is going on. It's worship. So we've seen that the word worship used to describe whole lives honouring God in spirit and truth. And we've now seen from Romans 12 that worship is also our service. In response to the mercy of God in Christ. Still, no mention of singing. No mention of music at all. In either of these kind of two critical passages uh, that speak of our worship of God in the New Testament. So what do you conclude from that? Now, it's interesting. 
there's a lot of debate going around. I talk about this kind of stuff at various other places as well, but there's a lot of debate going around at the moment. And some people conclude that because the worship words, the two main words I've mentioned here of the New Testament, are not used very much to describe us as we gather as Christians, as a church, if you like, or to describe our singing praises to God, they would say to use the term worship would be either unhelpful or some would go so far as to say even wrong to to call our church as a gathering. We gather to worship. They would say that's wrong and unhelpful. I know, for example, a book is coming out soon that will be just saying that. And I've met the author. I've spoken to him about it. The author will say that yeah, our worship, for example, is exactly the same as we, we gather in Starbucks with a couple of Christians as when we gather on Sunday as a church. And it, it is true. It is true that you can equally worship God anywhere, anytime. But God has created ordained means to encourage the worship of him in our lives. Look at Romans 12, for example. Paul here, having spoken about our lives serving God as worship... He then goes on, look at verse 3. He's addressing plural, the church in Rome. Uh, Verse 4, he speaks of them as a body. Verse 5, they belong to each other. Uh, Verse 6, they then have different gifts for the building up of the whole. He's speaking in church terms there. Yes, Paul is speaking of worship as a whole life service to God in verse 1 and 2, but that worship is to be lived out and encouraged in the context of church, us, doing life together. Now, let's be clear. That could be in Starbucks on a Wednesday, or a coffee shop if you're choosing, if you, whichever one you like, or a, or a Bible study on a Tuesday night. Notice Paul doesn't specifically mention, you know, the Sunday service of the church. And in many ways, there's nothing special about the meeting that we have here. But we, part of the church worldwide, uh, and we as a local expression of God's church here at Christ Church Shelter, we worship as God's people in numerous ways, in a numerous context. Yes, as we gather, whether that's just two or three of us in a coffee shop. Or, you know, as a Bible study group on a a whatever night or over a coffee sometime. The point is that God has made it clear in his word that there are leaders and elders to be appointed to teach and to lead and provide accountability as God's people gather. We don't have to meet on a Sunday at any specific place at any specific time. But we're not to meet up, not to give up meeting together, as we'll see in Hebrews later on this year. So the point is, why bother to gather to worship on a Sunday? Why don't you just download a talk and uh, stay in bed? When February comes, that seems like a pretty good option, doesn't it? Maybe just invite a few friends to a a coffee shop and listen to a talk together. Have your minds renewed by the word and and let God work through his spirit in that way to enable your lives of worship as you go out to work that week. Can I say, do, do all of that. 
Likewise with Bible studies, come together, encourage one another, do every evening after work, yeah, meet up, listen to a talk, yeah, read God's word, let the spirit work through the word, do all of those things. Open up God's word with a non-Christian friend. Your heart and mind will be renewed as you read God's word with them. That's all worship. But still, why bother coming here on a Sunday? Well, it's because again and again God encourages in his word that Christians are to gather not only to hear the word taught and so renew our minds, but also to come under leaders that have been appointed to pastor and to teach. The problem is there's no accountability with you sat in your bed. There's no accountability or leadership when you meet up with just a mate for a coffee. It's still a fantastic good thing to do. But it can't replace the gathering of God's people as church. The church is God's ordained and main vehicle that, that, to enable our worship of him throughout the rest of the week. Through teaching, singing, praying, but also through just being together. Do you remember Ephesians as we looked through it last year in our small groups? See, our unity in Christ is not only a wonderful reminder of the gospel for our own hearts, but it's also to the watching world. I was driving over Putney Bridge yesterday with uh, Barnaby, my eldest son, and uh, some rowing event was going on underneath us uh, on the river. I couldn't actually see any of the rowers to start with, any of the boats going up. There's big, lots of things going on, but I couldn't see them. But I knew a rowing event was going on, because I could see all the rowing fans with their particularly garish blazers and silly straw boater hats, you know, looking over uh, the river. You can tell a rowing crowd a mile off, can't you? They were dressed as rowers. You see, as the, as the watching world looks into our church, uh, any church like ours, they should see a very diverse, funny bunch of people, but who are united in one thing. In Christ. That is, they're all dressed the same in his righteousness. Remember Ephesians 2, for example, verse 20. Christ is the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And you see, when we look around and chatting to one another afterwards, what does that do? It instructs us. It, renew our, it renews our minds because... As we look around, we should see each of us are individually and together products of God's mercy. Where else, where else in the whole world would a bunch of us like, like us to get together? It just doesn't happen. And that should be an amazing encouragement to us. We gather to see each other because in seeing one another, it reminds us of God's grace that has been poured out on each of us individually. But it also reminds us and strengthens us to see that we are united in him. We're an advert, if you like, to each other and the watching world of the merciful work of God. You see, we gather as worshippers to enjoy the blessings of being encouraged by one another, but also that we can serve one another, equip one another, build one another up to go out and continue to continue worshipping God in our workplaces, at homes, wherever we go. Again, that can happen in smaller contexts. 
But God has given us instructions to gather, shown us how and why we should gather. And we must be very, very, very careful not to separate our understanding of the importance of church over here and our understanding of worship over here. And sadly, I think people are doing that too much. We gather as part of our lives of worship, but our gathering is for the purpose of worship so our minds can be renewed, so that we can be strengthened, so that we might go out to serve. So we gather to worship, to then scatter, if you like, and continue worshipping God. Oh, we should delight to come together to worship God. It, it should be special, it should be encouraging, and it should be prioritised. If you don't think that, well, look, at, look back at King David, for example, in, in the Psalms. He spent much of his time alone singing praises to God, worshipping God with his whole life. But he understood the priority and longed to gather. Psalm 35 reads like this, I give you thanks in the great assembly. He long, he's singing of longing to be there. Among the throngs I will praise you, he says. There's a longing to gather with God's people to be renewed and built up. And so summer draws to an end as temperatures drop. Of life, as life gets a bit busier, perhaps. We all get a bit more tired. We will all feel the pressure to press snooze again and again and again. And Sunday morning may be just... Something that you think, oh, that would just recharge me a little bit more if I stay in bed and don't go to church. A neglect gathering to worship God. Can I just say this as we close? Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on being encouraged. Come and marvel at how God in his mercy has saved even Rob Turner. He saved each of us and that we united in his son. Each week you could, make a, you could just devote yourself and pray about meeting a new person of the congregation that you don't particularly know well and, and endeavour to have your mind blown as you see the work of God, uh, grace worked out in their lives. Don't miss out on that encouragement because it will renew your mind. It will enable your true and proper worship as you leave as much as you when you gather. Don't miss out also in singing praises to God and to each other. We'll talk about this more on Tuesday. It doesn't matter how tone deaf you are. I want to hear you shouting truths of God's word in my ears. Don't miss out on hearing the Bible taught, prayed. Don't miss out. We gather to worship, to honour him, but also to serve him and his people. Don't miss out on that chance to serve a brother and sister and to love them. And what does that look like? It means coming. I mean, he's coming on time because, surprisingly enough, when guests come, they always come early. And some of you, you're never here. Come on time. I say that about once a year. I'm not going to say it again for another year, but come on time. Pray for leaders before you come. 
Be prepared knowing the passage, having read it. You get emailed every week. Read it. Understand it. Come prepared to receive as well. Prepare your heart and mind so you are that good soil. So there'll be a crop in your life. That's what we're praying for. That's what you should long for. That is true authentic worship as we gather. And in view of God's mercy, offer your whole lives in service to him. Come to church to serve as well as to leave church to serve. Serve one another as you encourage one another. Pray for one another. Serve your non-Christian friends. Show them Jesus. They need nothing more in their lives but him. Show them Jesus in your life of worship. And that is authentic, true and proper worship. We gather to worship as a church to encourage our lives of worship, wherever that may be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can live lives giving ourselves to serve you. But the great privilege, the greatest privilege is that we do so in view of your mercy, in view of the work that you have achieved, that completed work of Christ on the cross. Nothing that we do now as a gathered church or as we leave this week Nothing that we do will earn our way to heaven. We simply need to cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him and help us in such grateful response live out our lives joyfully, praising and serving and honouring the one who has saved us for heaven. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.